Hey, everybody, get ready for an informative episode from Parents' Rights in Education. I'm Suzanne Gallagher, and I'm looking forward to our time together. We stand and defend the fundamental rights of all parents to raise their children and firmly believe children belong to their families, not the state, not the teachers, the teachers' union, or any other bureaucrat. I invite you to visit our website, parentsrightsined.com. Sign up to receive our news alerts. Like our Facebook page. So much information is shared on this page. Get up to speed with the latest national news. Join us. Join or form a Parents' Rights and Education affiliate chapter. Making your voice heard is always easier with others. Just grab a couple friends and you're there. We will help with training, information, branding, and contact referrals. Let's start a Facebook group for you. Submit the chapter inquiry form on our website, parentsrightsined.com. Welcome to Parents' Rights Now. I'm Suzanne Gallagher. This is part two of Sex Identity Confusion, Parents in Public Schools. If we are to understand the so-called gender teaching in our K-12 public schools, we have to unpack the origin and the motivation of its proponents. I have several excellent resources in my library, including When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson, Get Out Now by Mary Hassan and Teresa Farnham, and The Cracks in the Edifice of Transgender Totalitarianism by Jane Robbins. Robbins, an attorney and writer in Georgia, is a graduate of Clemson University and Harvard Law School. She highlights some key elements in what has become far more than a passing fad. It's not just a different way of thinking. People are falling for a lie. These are other people's minor children, like Adrienne Bonzi's daughter, whose story I shared in the last episode. Robbins says, quote, transgenderism has shaken the foundations of all we know to be true. Scientific knowledge is rejected and medical practice co-opted in service of a new reality that gender is independent of biological sex, unquote. Escapees from the transgender movement describe it as an ideology with elements of both the political and the religious. The devotion to the ideology is deep. Stephen B. Levine, psychiatrist and co-director of a gender identity clinic, describes the mindset as, quote, anyone who hesitates in supporting transition and sex reassignment surgery is a dinosaur committed to an outgrown, inherently discriminatory understanding of trans persons and needs to be defeated in court or in the public arena, unquote. The wholesale acceptance by the academic and medical communities is astonishing. One cannot change biological sex. Why? Well, because sex is determined by unalterable chromosomes. No matter what alterations are applied to change one's physicality, a male on the day of conception will remain a male on the day of his death. The only way this truth can be refuted is to create false evidence to validate the mania. 
According to the University of California, Santa Barbara evolutionary biologist, Dr. Colin Wright, quote, the claim that classifying people's sex upon anatomy and genetics has no basis in science has itself no basis in reality as any method exhibiting a predictive accuracy of over 99.8% would place it among the most precise methods in all the life sciences. By contrast, gender identity is a physiological phenomenon, not an immutable characteristic, and not found anywhere in the body, brain, or DNA. There is no medical test that can detect it. Every cell of a male's brain has a Y chromosome, and every cell of a female's brain has two X chromosomes, which is true regardless of whether the individual feels like the opposite sex. Any evidence of an innate gender identity is utterly fictitious. Not only can the feeling change, but research shows that it does so. In a great majority of cases, at least for child patients, for example, children with gender dysphoria who are allowed to experience natural puberty will come to accept their sex by adulthood in 61 to 98% of the cases. By contrast, children who are subjected to transitioning treatments, such as puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, almost always go on to live as transgender adults. Data on the persistence rate of adult patients is unreliable, primarily because so many patients are lost to follow-up. But many of those patients are increasingly seeking medical help to reverse the procedures. This is key information in our discussion about schools teaching five-year-olds they can change their sex. By making these suggestions, school staff and administrators are delving into murky waters. There is no evidence that so-called gender-affirming treatment, or GAT, has any positive effect on the long-term psychological well-being of individuals who suffer gender dysphoria. Dr. Michelle Cretella, the president of the American College of Pediatricians, which is a group of doctors who formed their own professional guild in response to the politicization of the Academy of Pediatrics, emphasizes that mental health care should be guided by norms grounded in reality, including the reality of bodily self. One of the chief functions of the brain is to perceive physical reality. Let me say that again. One of the chief functions of the brain is to perceive physical reality. Thoughts that are in accordance with physical reality are normal, and thoughts that deviate from physical reality are abnormal, as well as potentially harmful to the individual or to others. This is true whether or not the individual who possesses the abnormal thoughts feels distress, unquote. Thank you, Michelle Cretella, for that clarification. Walt Heyer, a now-famous trans survivor and speaker uh, at the upcoming Safe Schools Summit on October 3rd in Portland, Oregon, describes the enablers of the transgender mania. He says, this is child abuse. We are manufacturing transgender kids. We are manufacturing their depression, their anxiety, and it's turned into a huge industry that people are profiting from after kids' lives are completely torn apart. There is absolutely nothing good about affirming somebody in a cross-gender identity because it destroys their life. It's insanity, unquote. 
The concepts of gender identity and transgenderism came from a group of 1950s sexologists. Endocrinologist Dr. Henry, Harry Benjamin and PhD psychologist Dr. John Money, who decided psychotherapy to be san- unsatisfactory treatment for patients wanting to change their sex. Dr. Money of Johns Hopkins University designated transsexualism a condition to be treated medically rather than psychologically. Money changed the terminology used, co-opting the term gender to now mean, quote, the social performance indicative of an internal sexed identity, unquote. Money decreed an individual could have a gender that differed from his or her biological sex. Transsexual thus became transgender. There is not and never has been any scientific basis for money's dichotomy between gender and sex, interpreted as the idea that a person can be born into the wrong body, yet money's social political construct now dominates medicine, psychiatry, academia, and the culture at large. It's obviously no surprise that money's enthusiasm for administering irreversible medical treatments to transgender patients led Johns Hopkins to establish one of the earliest programs for that purpose, enlisting psychiatrists, psychologists, endocrinologists, and, of course, surgeons. Under their ministrations, patients underwent hormone treatments and surgery to amputate healthy organs and create faux new ones. Despite ethical objections from psychoanalysts and many surgeons, Well, of course, it's one thing to remove diseased tissue and quite another to amputate healthy organs because emotionally disturbed patients request it. Johns Hopkins forged ahead with the experimental practice. Isn't that lovely? In 1979, John Hopkins' chief of psychiatry, Paul McHugh, was able to shut down the program, recognizing the psychological basis of gender dysphoria. But with McHugh's retirement, Dr. Money, in solidarity with the LGBT community, it has recently been revived. When transgender medicine was developed, Quentin Van Meter, MD, FCP, was part of the Johns Hopkins University hospital team. He describes the lies, bad medicine, and fraud behind that movement. Pre's website features an excellent presentation video featuring Dr. Van Meter. Now with the latest attention being focused on a pandemic virus, we've been hearing a lot about the World Health Organization. Now the political classification of gender dysphoria has gone global. And the World Health Organization decided in May 2019 to remove the condition from the list of mental disorders and refer to it as, quote, gender incongruence, unquote. Who explained this move as necessary to remove discrimination against dysphoric individuals and declare that their right to gender-affirming treatment should be guaranteed? Now is when our discussion gets much closer to home. 
During the decades following the first sex change of Christine Jorgensen in 1952, all such medical experimentation was confined to adults. In 2011, the percentage of confused adults was about mm, 02 to 0.3%. With children, it was even more rare. The most alarming feature of the sex change mania now is the insistence by the psychiatric, medical, and political lobbies that very young children can know who they are and that they may want to be the opposite sex. These professionals and politicians are committed to providing medical assistance to minors, permanently transforming their bodies to match their feelings, even without parents' permission and knowledge. I want you to understand exactly what we're talking about when a child chooses this path. The modern treatment regime for gender dysphoric children originated with Dr. Norman Spack, a pediatric endocrinologist who founded the nation's first gender clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. The procedure includes potentially four steps. The first is social transition, in which the confused child is referred to by any new name and new pronouns and is allowed to dress and otherwise act as a member of the opposite sex. Number two, suppression of natural puberty by administering puberty blockers called GNRH, agonists, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which supposedly will give the child more time to decide on further transitioning steps before his or her body can develop naturally into sexual maturity. Number three, hormonal transition. The administration of powerful physiology manipulating cross-sex hormones. Number four, surgical transition. Get ready. The physical effects of this so-called gender-affirming treatment, or GAT, are shocking. According to massive research compiled by the American College of Pediatricians, administering cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers carries enormous risks. Heart disease, blood clots, strokes, arrested bone growth, osteoporosis, cancer, crippling joint pain, depression, and suicidal ideation. Interference with normal puberty and sexual maturation, which results from both puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, will also cause sterility and permanent sexual dysfunction. These are merely the known effects because this type of treatment is so new Long-term consequences are unknown. GNRH agonists are not FDA-approved to inhibit normal puberty and are used off-label for this purpose. Planned Parenthood brags about offering this new service to their minor clientele. The surgery, SRS, is gruesome. Female patients may be given hysterectomies, vaginectomies, and double mastectomies. All of the removed organs, of course, perfectly healthy. And some surgeons are stripping skin from the girl's forearms to create non-functioning replicas of penises, sex organs, 
penis, testicles, scrotum of a male patient are removed, and a faux vagina is created that must be kept open with a dilator to prevent the wound from collapsing on itself and healing. In other words, these affirming doctors battle against normal systems of the human body, which retaliates by fighting off the intrusions. Patients will be engaged in this war for the rest of their lives and require monitoring and care from this community of doctors. We would assume that doctors who participate in GAT are overstepping the boundaries of acceptable or legal medical practice. I mean, how can this be legal? In 2017, the Endocrine Society issued guidelines that allow treatment of dysphoric children and adolescents with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, despite the known and yet unknown health risks. The guidelines feature mostly admonitions to monitor various aspects of the patient's health and involve mental health professionals. They advise on endocrinologists not to administer cross-sex hormones to prepubertal children. Even age limits for receiving irreversible cross-sex hormones are flexible, since there may be compelling reasons to do this to teenagers younger than 16. The only requirement is a multidisciplinary team in place to monitor the increase in heart attacks, strokes, bone deterioration, malignancies, and crippling depression. Gender clinics will be happy to provide the team. Oregon Health Sciences University is ready and willing to serve minors, and the Oregon Health Authority will pay for it. Sound medical practice has taken a backseat to, politi- to political demands. The Endocrine Society describes recommended treatment of permanent sterility resulting if GAT is fully implemented. Listen to their guidelines. Clinicians should inform pubertal children, adolescents, and adults seeking gender-confirming treatment of their options for fertility preservation. What? Nothing is said about serious counseling to explain the enormity of this decision. Do they care if a 13 or 15-year-old has not had the life experience nor the cognitive maturity to make such a serious life-changing decision and won't be before age 25? No, just tell the kids about options for fertility preservation whatever that means. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons has no ethical guidelines regarding GAT, but their worldview is evident by description of these surgical procedures as gender confirmation surgery. The Society's website advertises facial feminization or masculinization surgery, as well as trans feminization and trans masculine top and bottom surgery. Until recently, puberty blockers were not used before the patient reached age 11. Cross-sex hormones before age 16 and surgery before late adolescence or adulthood. As you might expect, the industry is lowering the ages. Dr. Joanna Olson-Kennedy, a California pediatrician, altered the protocol for a federal study she is performing to allow administration of cross-sex hormones to children as young as age 8. Did you hear that? Eight years old? Double mastectomies are performed on girls as young as age 13. Stanford University pediatric oncologist Dr. Tandy I is urging legislative changes to allow adolescent minors to undergo sterilizing surgery 
even though the idea that a minor can fully understand the ramifications of sterility is, to say the least, inconsistent with what is known about adolescent brain development. Some surgeons are already performing mutilating surgery on minor boys, arguing that age is arbitrary and that teens are better off having the grotesque and painful procedures while they are still at home where their parents can supervise post-op care. Oh, good heavens. These surgeons claim to perform these permanent life-altering procedures only on, quote, mature adolescents. Maturity, of course, is determined by the ideologically driven doctor, apparently with little or no recognition of the obvious emotional problems of a boy who wants to be castrated. Sorry, I'm getting worked up over this, but it's crazy. All of this is experimental. We are performing medical experiments on minor children. Elite transgender doctors are doing whatever they want. It appears guidelines are for appearances only to help direct inexperienced physicians how to handle these patients in politically correct ways and present a veneer of sober reflection to ward off intervention by some professional or governmental body that might actually shut down some of the horrors. For good reason, children are not allowed to drink alcohol, smoke, gamble, vote, drive a car, sign a contract, or access certain entertainment. Nor are they allowed to obtain other medical treatments without parental consent. Who are these people advocating that the feelings of children too young to buy cough syrup should override all contrary considerations? As we all know, dissent is not tolerated. Anyone, whether a parent, physician, teacher, classmate, or other, who questions their decisions is labeled a homophobe, a bigot, a transphobe, and must be silenced. The political transgender community has labeled parents' rights in education a hate organization. I assure you, we advocate for parents' rights because no family should be victims of this ideology. We care about them and their children and defend them from dealing with the heartache of literally losing their children to this medical and psychological scam to profit from other struggles and confusion. That is love, not hate. Join me, Suzanne Gallagher, for part three to learn how public schools are facilitating the recruitment of students into this dangerous ideology. Don't forget to register for the Northwest Safe Schools Summit, featuring Walt Heyer, Heidi St. John, Todd Herman, Bernadette Broyles Esquire, and Rebecca Friedrichs. The date is Saturday, October 3rd, Shiloh Inn, Portland, Oregon Airport. Check out events on our website. Parents' Rights in Education is a tax-deductible, non-profit organization. We rely solely on your contributions. Help stop sexualization of our students in public schools. Together, we can do this. See you next time to learn more about parents' rights now.